You may be seated. If you would, as you're going there, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And we will be looking at verses 7 through 13 here in a moment. You know, there are some... Some words that just make sense to us, you know? One of, the, one of the things, one of the words that makes sense to us is hillbilly. You know, this is a word that means someone from the hills. Or city folk, people that are from the city. It's not rocket science. We can figure out what certain words mean. We, a lot of these words that are used are, are words to describe where people are from. Sometimes the words are, they make perfect sense. Somebody from the mountains, somebody from outside the city is a hillbilly. Somebody from the city is a city folk, right? Those make sense. Sometimes, though, the words don't actually line up like we think they do. If you've ever been to Hawaii, there is a word that is used sometimes nicely, sometimes pejoratively put down like. It's the word howly. Anybody ever heard that word? Okay, a howly is somebody who's not from Hawaii. And what's interesting about this word is this word has a really interesting history. Because you would think it would mean non-island person or not from Hawaii. But that's actually not what the word means. Turns out Alice Kanahalaohi, I don't know if I got that right, sorry Alice. She's a linguist from Hawaii. And she studied the origin of words. And one of the words she studied was the word haole. And this is what she says. Before the missionaries came, my people, the Hawaiian people, used to sit outside their temples for a long time, meditating, preparing themselves before entering. They would literally creep and crawl to the altar to offer their petition. And afterwards, they would sit outside for a long time to breathe life into their prayers. However, when the Christians came, they just got up, said a few words, finished with amen, and got on with their business. For that reason, my people called them howlies, which means those without breath. Specifically meaning those who fail to breathe life into their prayers. Now that word is way different than just, you're not from the island. It's actually describing the first non-islanders to the island as those without breath. It actually was a religious reproach. The Hawaiian islanders were saying, you guys don't really take this praying thing very seriously. You don't take it seriously even at all. And if we step aside and we think about it, this might actually apply to us as well. We all might be spiritual howlies in our own right when it comes to prayer. Because if we think about it, how how often do we just step aside and offer up a little prayer? And I think the Lord is glorified and honored by the fact that we thought of him. But there's more to it than that, isn't it? The fact that Jesus is now going to pause in his look at the hypocrites to tell us about prayer. Not only just to tell us what not to do, but instruct us at length on how to do it shows that this is very important. This is communicating with the God of the universe. And so today, let's learn from the king how to communicate with the king. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. 
Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. So today, we're going to dig into this. Pastor Travis and Pastor Eric and Pastor Adolfo and I were talking this week, and we were all lamenting we only had one sermon to cover this, because it could keep going forever and ever. Uh, Pretty much each point in here deserves an entire sermon, and maybe someday in the future we'll do that. So it's going to be a lot of information. There's going to be a lot of stuff here. Just be prepared, and if you need it, talk to me afterwards, and I'll give you my notes. So here's our big idea. Kingdom citizens pray sincere prayers to and focused on their heavenly Father in heaven who provides all of their needs. So it's prayer that is sincere. Sincere means without wax. It means without any flaws, without any sort of problems. See, the way it would work was they would sell big pieces of, 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 of granite and they would have cracks in it and they'd fill it in with wax. And they'd say, look, it's one big complete piece. And then you'd go and you'd set something hot on it and the wax would go and you'd now have a cracked piece of granite. Sorry, no refunds. That's what sincere means. Sincere means with no cracks, with completely the way it's supposed to be. And we see this in that Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the Gentiles. That's the sincere part. And then we are to pray to our Father in heaven. And we're to pray focused on our Father in heaven. And those two things, praying to and focusing on, acknowledge the fact that he meets our needs. He meets all of them in ways we can't even begin to grasp. Prayer is so central in the life of the follower of Christ that Jesus can't help himself. He's going through here and he says, don't pray like the hypocrites. And then he goes, oh yeah, and don't be like the Gentiles. Oh yeah, and this is how you should do it. I mean, you can just see he's just kind of, he's ramping it up because he wants us to have that communion with God the Father like he's had for all of eternity. And it should come as no surprise that the start of the prayer, the words, pray like this, are almost the direct center of his entire sermon. There are 116 lines before that line and 114 after. This is the middle of the sermon. This is the high point. You get to talk to the God of the universe. If that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. So the prayer's purpose. First thing we see is this is a model prayer. This is easily memorized. Many of you have it memorized, and you've probably memorized it. I know I have it memorized in the old King James, where it's these and thous and thines and things like that. But this is meant to be a lesson, a prayer to use as the bones to build your prayers off of. It's a model prayer. Not only is it a model prayer, but it's an outline of how we're to live the Christian life. This is to be not only what we pray, but how we live. It's a combo deal. Because here's the thing. We get prayer messed up. We get prayer really messed up. You know, I I know that I have felt like, and maybe some of you can feel like it as well, I feel like I get prayer wrong. I, I treat it as if I'm calling the butler, hey, Jeeves, you know, I could really use a fluffed pillow. Could you bring that to me? Hey, my drink needs refilling. Can you come down here? You know, I'm a little cold. Could you bring me a blanket? We're not calling the great butler upstairs. 
we're not reaching out to have our pillow fluffed. See, prayer in the Bible is a wartime walkie-talkie to communicate with our God, our King in heaven, to say, I want your mission going forward, and here's where we need reinforcements. Send them pronto. That's the picture that we get in the Bible. Not of someone to meet my needs, but me to call in for help to the general, to the king, to fight against the powers of darkness and disbelief in this world, to see the kingdom come, the kingdom in life now. So Jesus starts off and he says, prayers need to be sincere. Prayers need to be complete. And as we talked about last week, he talks about the hypocrites in verse 5. He says, don't pray proudly. Don't pray selfishly. Look at what it says in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, for they have been seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Remember, again, it's not about the place they were praying. It's not about being in the synagogues. It's not about standing and praying. It's not about being outside and praying. It's the motive of the heart. Their heart was, hey, look at me. My prayers are awesome. And Jesus says, that's the only reward they're getting. They're getting nothing from God. Then he says in verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. See, our prayer is to be the overflow in public of our prayer life in private. It's to be the overflow. It's not about people hearing me. It's about God hearing me. And, you know, this is hard as somebody who prays all the time in front of you all. It's hard not to want my prayers to sound really good so that you guys would be impressed or to be encouraged or to be challenged. And, and, and many of you do that. You pray in public as well. And it's a hard balancing act. Because, honestly, I want to pray and talk to God. And you know what? When I'm praying and talking to God, it doesn't sound all flowery. I don't use these and thous. And many times there's stutters and there's words that don't make sense. And I say something and I go, that actually came out absolutely wrong. But see, that's the way it should be. We should pray in our our private life and it just overflows into public. Don Carson writes, the public versus private antithesis is a good test of one's motives. The person who prays more in public than in private reveals that he's less interested in God's approval and more in human praise. And that's a scary place to be. So he says, don't pray like that. Don't pray to make yourself look good. The next group he goes after is the babblers. He says, many words don't get God's mind. Mindless prayers, the repetition over and over again doesn't get it. Look at verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, I like to read the message translation. It's not really a translation. It's a paraphrase. uh, Just because sometimes he kind of helps us get it a little bit. I just thought this was a clever way of putting it. So I'm going to read it to you. He says, The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are in fact prayer ignorant. They're, They're full of formulas and programs and advice peddling techniques for getting what you want from God, don't fall for their nonsense. This is your father you're dealing with, and he knows you better than you think. I thought that was perfect. So he says, don't heap up, right? Don't, che- the, 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 don't collect a collection of vain words, empty words. The word for empty is the word batalageo in the Greek. And this word is an onomatopoeia. 
So we're going to rewind back to English class, probably about third grade. This is where a word sounds like what it is. So the word oink means oink. The word boom means boom. The word beep means beep. So bata legeo means saying a lot of bata. Bada, 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 bada. Or blah, 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 blah. Right? This is what he's saying. He's saying to say blah, to use lots and lots of words. And the reason he singles out the Gentiles is what this is what all of them did. Now, it doesn't mean the Jews weren't also trying to heap up words. But he's saying the two groups, Gentiles and Jews, prayed very differently. Don't pray like either of them. See, the pagan gods thrived on incantation, which is magic words, and then repetition. They would actually repeat the same words over and over and over again because the pagan gods couldn't see the person's heart and whether they were sincere or not. So the pagan gods were like, I'm not going to give it to you until you say it a hundred times. And then once you say it a hundred times, I might give it to you. See, these were begrudging givers. These gods were not giving gods. They didn't even exist, but they were not gods that were giving. I think about Elijah and the followers of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah and Baal are having this, this show off that, you know, God, he's going, pray to Baal, I'll wait. And they pray and they do it for hours and hours and they're cutting themselves. And none of them are surprised that it's taken so long. Did you notice that? They're not, they're not like, well, usually he answers after the first hour. They're going, we got to keep going. He's just not ready. And then, of course, Elijah's like, well, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's doing something else. There's also in the New Testament when, when, when Paul goes to the city of Ephesus and the, the, the people who are selling all the goods to the goddess Artemis, the, the goddess of this city, they get together and they're so mad they just chant, chant great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this is actually what they would chant in the temple to get her attention. They're doing it in the public square and it wasn't just a la 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 la. It was they were calling down fire and it never came. See, they think by their many words that they're going to get their attention. Instead, look at, what, look at what Jesus says. He says, your father knows. Your father knows. This is a huge contrast here. This world does not know God as the father. They might call him that, but they don't know him that way. Therefore, their prayers go wrong. This prayer that we read today is actually one of the more common prayers that you see in movies. You know, the guys are about to get, you know, they're, they're surrounded. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer. doesn't matter that we're drug dealers and we just murdered a bunch of people, but hey, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer and now God's got to look after us. See, they're getting it wrong. These aren't magic words. This prayer instead is the model prayer of the Son of God so that the adopted children of God can get his ear, so that the God that is their father will hear them. And the good news is, is if you're not one of those adopted children, you can join the family today. There's no waiting list. There's no, there's no queue that you have to wait in. We don't have to do a background check, thank God. Instead, you can be a part of that family right here and right now. No matter how good or how bad your earthly father is, your heavenly father has got his arms open wide, and he's a good dad. And he says, I want you. It says he knows you. That word is remember. That means he knows all about you. He knows you inside and out. He knows exactly what you need. See, God doesn't require new information. When we're going and we're praying to him, we're not listing all the things that he missed because he was off playing with the Crab Nebula. 
He is here now. He sees it all. And he is somebody we can confidently trust in. Rather than hide from God in our hypocrisy like the Pharisees or mistrust him and think we have to package it a certain way like the pagans, we can come to him and we can cast all our cares on him. Why? Because he cares for us. 1 Peter 5, 7. He knows us. He cares for us. So Jesus wants us to stop being pretentious and faking it. And if we are not good at praying, so be it. It's not about the prayers. It's about the one the prayers are to. He also wants us to not be, and I love this word, full of garrulity. This is a word that means to share lots and lots of words for no purpose. That's not the point of prayer. It's not to bombard God with so many words that he has to eventually go, okay, fine, would you shut up? That's not the point. Instead, it's avoid those two and have an intimate relationship with your heavenly Father. See, we kind of mislabel this prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. That's probably better used in John 17 when Jesus is praying for us. You guys remember that in John 17, the high priestly prayer? He prays for all of us, every single person that will believe in him. This is probably better a disciple's prayer or the Lord's model prayer. See, Jesus is such a great teacher. He says, this is how you are to pray so that your mind is in the right place. See, we, we should be used to this by now. We've been through halfway through the Sermon on the Mount, and the entire time it's been, where's your heart in this? Not, here are the actions I have to do to get God happy with me. It's, where's your heart? Is your heart in the right place? And if it's not, you need the corrective help of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has liberated us from this false certainty that lots of words or certain words are going to get an answer. And he liberates us into true certainty that we have a Father that knows us and cares for us. So what is prayer? We've been throwing that word around. It's, it's what we're talking about today. What is prayer? One author says, it's the intentional conveying of a message to God. See, God doesn't pray to us. God reveals himself to us. We pray to him. We intentionally give him a message. Now, why would I use the word intentionally there? Well, it's because whether you know it or not, all day long, you're sending messages to God. Our world is sending messages to God. Sometimes it's verbal. Most of the time, it's not. Most of the time, it's, I don't have time for you right now. Or, I got this. I don't need your help. You know what? This doesn't apply to you, God. This is my own realm over here. That's what our world does. Our world only calls on God. It's like the break the glass in case of emergency. And when we pray, we are intentionally saying, Lord, this is where my heart's at. Let me show you. Not because he doesn't know, but because he wants that relationship, that intimacy with us. So don't miss this. We're not informing God. He already knows. We're not convincing God. He's already got a plan, and it's better than we can imagine. But we are to remember that our Heavenly Father is in control. We are to recognize our dependence on him. We are to recognize that he is the one that provides. So stop for a second. Think, if, if I'm not praying, what's the problem? Well, the problem is unbelief. See, prayerlessness and unbelief go hand in hand. When I have faith in God, prayerfulness comes out. I should be praying nonstop. But when I don't have belief in God, I start doing no prayer. I start leaving prayer out. So for the Christian, praying should be like breathing. So this prayer is short, but I'm going to tell you right now, this prayer is not simple. 
This is not a simple prayer. There is depth here. Like I said earlier, we could plumb this for weeks on end. So the first thing we notice is that the prayer is broken into two sections. And these two sections are very similar to the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, there's what's called the first table of the law and the second table of the law. First table of the law is all God-directed. It's all focusing on our relationship with God. The second half is all about our relationship to others. And this prayer models that. The first three petitions are God-centered. They're all about God. The second three are all about us. So here we go. Here's the first one. He says, pray to our Father. Verse 9, pray then like this our Father in heaven. Notice it says, pray like this. Not pray this, not pray these exact words. These are not the abracadabra, open sesame. This is a model of how you are to pray, not what you are to pray. It's manner, not content. This prayer is like handrails. This prayer is like uh, a foundational structure. This prayer is like the bones that hold everything up. This is where we are to have a relationship with God. And we miss it. Just these four words, our Father in heaven. There is so much relationship just bound up in these four words. We see fellowship, we see intimacy, and we see adoration. So the first one we see is fellowship. It starts off with our This is a corporate, this is a community prayer. It's saying we are a part of the same family. It's not my father, because if you prayed that, we'd all be like, can we say father? Because it was Jesus talking. Jesus is saying, no, we're all in the same family. You're adopted into the family I was born into. It's our family. The next thing we see is we see our father. There's intimacy here. There's intimacy because it doesn't say our creator. It doesn't say our king. It doesn't say our master, our ruler, or some other word. It uses the word father. There's intimacy here. Muslims have 99 names for Allah in the Quran, and not one of them is father because that concept is foreign to them because God is so other. But for us, God became a man, and that man, God-man, Jesus, brings us into relationship with him. We are adopted because Jesus came. And then finally, we see adoration in heaven. This speaks of what we call transcendence, which is God is other. He's outside of us, and he's sovereign. This phrase is found 20 times in Matthew, this in heaven phrase. It's the focus of Matthew. God is almighty. He is omnipotent. He is the sovereign Lord. He is in heaven, but yet he's here now. And there is adoration because the God of heaven has condescended to come down to us, to be with us. Look at Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. It's on the screen. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. So he says, there's where God is. He's way out there, but look at the next I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He is outside the created order and the the, the painter has entered into his painting and is a part of it right here with us. The God of the universe is here with us. There's adoration that is needed. We don't have to yell to get God's attention. He's not on the toilet. He's not on vacation like the prophet, like the Baal, like Baal was. 
No, he is here with us right now, and he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. So all prayer starts here. It has to start here, because if we don't point in the right direction and get our hearts in the right place, our prayers are going to go all over the place. Many times we'll start praying and the prayer will change directions because we start off with, okay, I have a list of things. I got to get to these things and I only got a few minutes. Okay, uh, yeah, God, okay. But now here's my list. But when we start rightly with, God, you are in heaven and you are the God of the universe and you made me and you created me and you are gracious and merciful and loving and all of a sudden my big needs become smaller and smaller and my prayers begin matching up with what we see here. We begin to realize that we spend way too much time on ourselves in our prayers. We drop to our knees and we think of ourselves and nothing happens. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, according to the Lord's teaching here, we should not expect anything to happen when we pray about ourselves. That's not the way the Lord approached God. First, we must go to God and declare who he is. So there's lots of prayers in the Bible. All these prayers in the Bible have things in common. Let me show you a couple. Because you know what? I can tell you this, but if the Bible doesn't match it, you just throw it out. But here are some examples of prayers in the Bible. Daniel, chapter 9. Daniel's in a tough spot. One commentator says he was terribly perplexed, which does not sound like fun. And instead of going to God fix my situation... Look at what he goes to. He says, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, to all the people of land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as, in, at, it, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel and those who are near and those who are far off and all the lands who've driven them because of the treachery they have committed against you. So see, David starts off and he says, my focus is God first and foremost. And if I got time, I'll get around to this terribly perplexing situation that I'm in because the focus is God in our prayers. Jeremiah 32 He's been, Jeremiah has been told by the Lord to go buy a piece of land in a country that's about to be destroyed. And he goes, huh? And he starts praying, and this is what he says. Ah, Lord God. Like right there, we need more ah, Lord God in our prayers. It is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children's after them. O oh, great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel, mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. He says, this is how great you are. And what's interesting is as he gets later on into asking the Lord, do you really want me to go buy this land in a country that's going to be destroyed? He already has his answer. Because he knows God is in control. John 17, that high priestly prayer, Jesus starts off. He goes right into, God, this is what you've done. This is how you've glorified me. This is how you've glorified your name. And he goes on and on and then eventually prays God. He gets to us and prays for us and all the believers that will come after him. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious of anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known. Why doesn't he just say, by prayer? If prayer is just about asking for the things I need, why does Paul say prayer and supplication? Well, 
for us, we may not know. Supplication means to ask for things. So he says, pray, oh yeah, and ask for things. Why not put them together if they're just the same thing? Because prayer is communing with the God of the universe. And Jesus lays that out right here. There is an order here. Lloyd-Jones says again, there's always an invocation, which is saying what God is like before a petition, asking him for things. Here it is once and forever, so perfectly modeled in this prayer. What a cool picture we have. What's interesting here is that Jesus gives us boldness. He says, ask for these things. Say, do these. And sometimes we kind of are like kind of hedging our bets and we kind of go, well, you know, if you got time, you could do this. But what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is saying, call on God and say, do these things. Well, are we commanding God to do stuff? Are we bossing him around? No. What we're doing is we're saying, God, keep your promises. You promised these things. You said you would do these things. Keep your promises. Now, it's really impossible to go up to a complete stranger and ask that stranger to keep his promise to you because they don't know you. There is no promise. So one of the things that happens when we get more and more intimate with our God, the more and more we get to know him, the more we know his promises, and the more we can say, God, you do not lie. You tell the truth. You will keep your promises. And so this is an opportunity for us to call on God to keep his promises. And here's the structure. Verse 9, the second part. Hallowed be your name. This is the first of the three petitions that are God-focused. Hallowed means holied or made holy or honored. See, God already is holy. This is not saying, God, if you got time, make yourself better. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, make your name known. Make it, everybody sees it. One author writes, may your name or reputation, who you are and what you've done, be thought of and acknowledged as holy throughout the world. A lot of times we see this phrase here, and we don't really see that this is actually a request. It's asking God to make his name great in the world. If we started seeing God's name as great, there would be no room for flippancy or lack of respect. Think about how this would change the world if people started using God's name with the respect it was deserved instead of before the word damn or instead of a, oh my God, but they used it in respect. See, in this time period, a name was very important. A name was the essence of the person. We choose names because they sound good. Names in the past were, this is what you're like. And so God's name is one that represents his person, his authority, and his character. So this hallowing of his name, this making honor of his name is to make his name as great as it is. So there's two aspects to this. We see God will make his holiness evident and seen throughout the world. That's the part that we're calling. Lord, make your name seen. And then the second part is in me. Hallowed be your name. In the world doesn't mean I can use it flippantly. It means, no, me, I need to use it rightly as well. So this prayer starts with adoration. John Piper says, Nothing is more clear or unmistakable that this is the purpose of everything in the universe. His kingdom comes so that his name will be hallowed. His will is done so that his name will be hallowed. Humans have bread sustaining their life to hallow his name. Sins are forgiven to hallow his name. Temptation is escaped so that his name is hallowed. This is why we exist. We exist to glorify God. Period. Stop. That's it. There's nothing else. That is why we exist. 
See, the, the, there's, there's kind of a couple different ways people, kind of extremes that people go to with viewing God as our father. One is the sentimentality version, which is like God's kind of this grandfather figure where he's eminent, which means near. He's, he's family. He's loving. He's approachable. He's safe. You just kind of cuddle up to him. He doesn't really ask you much. Probably gives you more dessert than your parents would give you. And so grandfather, dad, right? The other version of God is the mysterious God. This is the God that is so unlike us that he's unreachable. He's mysterious. He's terrifying. He's unknowable. He's dangerous. But these two phrases, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, combine to say, praise God, he's both. He is the God of the universe, and he's out there, but he's here right now. He is family, but he still is mysterious, and we don't quite get him sometimes. He is loving, and he is terrifying. He is approachable. He is also unknowable. He is safe, and yet he's dangerous. I'm reminded of that famous line from the Chronicles of Narnia. He's not a tame lion, but he's a good lion. Is he safe? No. He's good. And that's our God. We have this relationship with him that is not the sentimental, he's always okay with everything I do. He's not the mysterious where I don't really know who he's like. We have both together. A God that we can't explain or understand fully is a God that actually exists. A God that we can understand fully is one we made up. So praise be to God that we don't get him completely yet. Verse 10, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now that on earth as it is in heaven actually modifies both of the phrases here. That's why I've added it to this. I'm not rewriting the Bible. Don't throw things at me. Second God-oriented petition, your kingdom come. It means arrive. Your kingdom is to be here. Now there's some debate among theologians. Is this the second coming of God in the future? It's called the second coming of Christ in the future. Or is this the extending of Christ-likeness through the world by fighting for justice? Or is it people coming to know the Lord and the kingdom numerically growing? And the answer is yes, all three. Because here's the thing. There is a past element to the kingdom of God. Mark 1.15, John the Baptist says, the kingdom of God's here. So there is a past. It is, it is growing. It is becoming more. There is a future element that his kingdom will be fully here at the second coming of Christ. And there's a present element in that more and more people are coming to know the Lord daily. And that's extending the kingdom and the reach of the kingdom. So this phrase, your kingdom come, has a longing and a responsibility. One, we're to long for that kingdom. And we can see glimpses of it here by how we extend the kingdom out into our world. And reversing the fall however we can. But we also are going to be longing for the fact that it's not going to fully happen until we meet Jesus face to face, whether that's by our lives on earth ending or his return. The second is that we have a responsibility, and that responsibility is as we are longing, we don't hole up in our houses and go, I can't wait for Jesus to come back. No, we go and try to tell as many people as possible. Because when we do that, the kingdom on earth expands and this place gets better because guess what? There's more people that are acting like Christ. It will never be perfect this side of the second coming, but there's work to be done. Another way to put this is that the the kingdom, we can't quite see it yet, but the scaffolding is in place. I love what Hebrews 12, 28 says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. 
This unshakable kingdom means that if my body is destroyed, the kingdom is not. That means if this church is destroyed, the kingdom is not. If this country is destroyed, the kingdom is not. For the unshakable kingdom is not going anywhere except for that it's coming here. And that's our hope that we have. Next thing we see in verse 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will means your desires. God, what you want done, have it be done. There's a a broad and a narrow focus here. Narrow is that in my life, I want God's will for my life. And then the broad is we want that will for the church and for the world as a whole. See these requests? There's actually three of them in here. One is that God's will will be done now on earth as it is in heaven. The second is that it will be fully accomplished because in heaven, there's no area that God doesn't have everything the way he wants it. So we want it fully accomplished here. And then third, we want it in the same way as in heaven. See, there's only room for one kingdom in our lives. Do you ask God to surrender to your kingdom or do you surrender to God's kingdom? Breaking your bondage to self is the key reason why we pray wrong. It's the key reason why we sin the way we do, because we are in bondage to self. When he says, your will be done, he's saying, your sermon on the mount be done in me in this world. So we are praying to be obedient like the angels in heaven. May God's will on earth be done as it is in heaven. Now, I don't have any scripture background for this, but I'm assuming that the angels in heaven aren't moping and dragging their feet and going, okay, God, I guess I'll do that. God's not asking him 10 times and reminding him, slow obedience is no obedience. I've never said that to any of my children. (laughs) So we are asking God to make us quick to hear his will and to follow through immediately. That's what we are to be like. The angels immediately serve the Lord. That's the way we want it to be on this earth. But let's look one more time at the structure of this first part because I I told you guys, this is short, but it's not simple. So we see God's name, his kingdom, and his will. These match up perfectly to what we get when these things become more clear to us. And they match up with what Paul teaches, that faith, hope, and love. Let me show you. In praying for God's divine name to be made holy, we are praying for our faith to grow. As we pray for God's name to be made great and to be made known throughout the world, it boosts our faith because we're seeing God. We're seeing him more. In praying that his kingdom come, we are praying and our hope increases because his kingdom is here now, but it's coming in power. We know this death is not the end. America going away is not the end. The enemy does not win in the end. Jesus wins. And there's hope there for that. And then third, praying for God to do his will is praying for love. It's praying for the ability to love everyone because God's will is that none should perish. And so that builds love in us. Now watch this. Not only do we see hope, faith, faith, hope, and love. I'll get it right. Faith, hope, and love. But we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. First one we see is hallowing the name of God the Father. That one's easy. The coming of the kingdom of who? The son, the king. And then God's will is done. How is God's will done on earth right now? Through the Holy Spirit. See, this, this, this prayer is not 
simple. This prayer is not just for children. This prayer is deep enough theologians can't get to the bottom. And there's so much more I had to cut out. Sorry. So now we move into the second table. Verses 11 through 13 are all about our needs, about the human needs, about the the we needs. They are all tied together by and, so they all go together. And really what we see here is we see a restoring of the garden. This is the factory reset that we are pleading with God to do. He's going to do all of these at the second coming, but he's also doing them now. That's the already not yet of the kingdom. See, there's a flow here. We start with food, and then we move to forgiveness, and then we move to freedom and guidance. The food represents our present needs. The forgiveness represents our past needs. And the freedom and guidance represents our future needs. And God is the God of all three. Praise the Lord. He's a God of the future, the past, and our present. The whole of life is found in these three petitions, our physical, our mental, our spiritual. This is a whole body prayer. So we got our present needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is not saying you got to go on a carb diet. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying bread is the only thing you're allowed to eat. What he's saying is what you need to survive, pray for it today. Sustenance, which results in health, is what we're praying for. He's saying your basic needs depend on God. See, it's okay for us to pray for the things we need. Jesus gives us the go-ahead. Not for our wants, but for our needs. And that's a constant battle, isn't it? We live in Disneyland of the world. In America, you can order stuff and it shows up at your house like magic on your front porch in a little Amazon package. There's places in the world where you can't do that. There's places in the world you got to bring your water to your house and you got to boil it. It's not like, I'm thirsty, I'm just going to go get myself a nice drink of water. There are places in the world where there's not Starbucks on every other corner. So we have a hard time with differentiating needs and wants. And that's between you and the Lord to be able to figure that out. If we forget to pray this, though, will we not get our daily bread? Because I see a lot of people around here that are not believers here in Oregon who haven't missed very many meals. They've got lots of daily bread. So why is God giving them daily bread when they're not asking and giving me daily bread when I ask? Well, it goes back to what we saw earlier when it was he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. See, God in his mercy gives everybody the bread that they need. It gives them what they need. The difference here, again, is our heart position. We never see anything that we consume that does not come from God. And we are to say, God, thank you for that. Thank you for that cheeseburger. Thank you for that bread. Thank you for that salad. Thank you for that drink, cold or hot or lukewarm, whatever it is. Thank you because everything I consume is a gift from you. The bread comes from the Father. And when we break bread and we thank him for it, we are communing with him. We are communing with him beyond words. We're showing him that we're grateful. Because remember, what does James 1.17 say? Every good, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Our God gives good gifts. So that's our present need. Now we move into the past. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as you have also, we have also forgiven our debtors. 
This moves from the physical to the spiritual needs. This is, we want grace, which results in hope. We want the hope that our pardon is there, our forgiveness is there. That word debt is another word for sins or transgressions. It means obligations. It means we, something we can't pay back. And Jesus paid for that on the cross so that our debts were paid. This is Jesus commanding us to ask the Father for forgiveness when we fail, which we do. This is not about our original forgiveness going away. It's about we are forgiven, and now we recognize that sin breaks the intimacy we have with God, and we ask for that forgiveness for that restoration. We're going to talk about this a little more at length next week when we get into verses 14 and 15. So we've done our present need, our past need. Now we move forward into the future. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the last of the we-oriented petitions. This is protection that results in holiness. Lead literally means to carry away. So we're saying not just lead, like, come on, come on. No, grab me, pick me up, and take me away from the temptation, Lord. This word temptation can mean trials, it can mean tests. See, God doesn't lead us into temptation. James 1.13 is very clear on that. So a better way to understand this is, Lord, help me not to give in in the temptation. Don't abandon me to the temptation. See, God does not entice us to sin. He does not lure us into temptation. But he does allow us to get into some situations where we are tempted. Tempted by someone, the evil one, who desires our failure. Jesus is telling us to ask the Father, please minimize or eliminate the temptations. And sometimes the Father says yes, sometimes the Father says no, but on each one, he says, I got you. See, here's the thing, is when our eyes are on Christ, there's no foothold for the devil. There's no foothold for evil. And so if we get to the end of this prayer and we've got our eyes on Christ, the temptations are not going to be as powerful. And he will literally, like deliver, means to rescue, to save us. One author writes, the disciples are so weak, they are no match for the devil. They need a savior, not an assistant. They need a hero, not a helper. They need a champion who will fight the evil one and snatch them from the clutches of the enemy who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. Remembering 1 Corinthians 10, there is no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he also provides the way of escape that you may be able to endure. He provides the means. So we've seen this prayer. We've just scratched the surface. We are spiritual howlies at times, aren't we? Because we understand prayer is required, so we do it with rote repetitiveness over and over again, thinking that meets the needs when we act more like the pagans. Or worse, we don't pray at all unless we see our great need. Christ tells us that we need life breathed into our prayers. We need the breath of life. We need, we need to have a vibrant prayer life. And praise be to God, he didn't just say, don't pray like the hypocrites who pray out in public and then move on. Figure it out yourself. Instead, he says, I'm going to give you an outline. I'm going to give you a model for you to start from and then go with it. Start with your heavenly father. Talk about his kingdom. Right, focus yourself in the right direction and then pray for what you need. Pray for your past, your present, and your future. 
And he is faithful. He is just. When we rightly focus on God and his kingdom and how he meets our needs, he is a joyful giver who gives us those needs. So what I want to do here at the end is I would like you all to stand with me and we're going to say this prayer together and then Taylor's going to lead us in some songs. So if you would please stand with me. The words will be up here so we're all reading the same version. And we'll say it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.